welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Father, I adore you. Let's start our morning by singing praise to him. As a child, my father, in order to teach me to swim, threw me in the deep end. Years later, we were sitting around the kitchen table, and I looked back on that event, and I said, you know, the way I learned to swim, Dad, was you threw me in the deep end. And he said, did you think I was trying to teach you to swim? Um, oh, I know. I apologize to our visitors this morning. I'm going to throw you in the deep end. We are in Romans 9. We have been going verse by verse through the book of Romans as we do. Go verse by verse through books of the Bible in order to find out what the original apostles wrote. And then adjust our theology accordingly. We got all the way to verse 15... Paul has so far told us the reality that God does pick and choose. He does elect people. But in this context, he's been talking about electing people within Israel. 
and he's been dividing Israel the seed from Israel the hardened, the blinded. And as we have emphasized for several weeks now, Paul is only talking about the people group of Israel. He's not expanding out any of his theology to say that uh, the church is now Israel or that the church is spiritual Israel. None of that language exists in anything that he's saying here. Instead, what he is saying continually, constantly is that within Israel, God has picked and chosen the direction that the promises were going to go. He gave us examples. He gave us the example of Abraham. And Abraham had two sons. But it's not through Ishmael that your seed's going to be called, but through Isaac your seed will be called. And then he gave us another example. Two babies in a womb. And God said that the older was going to serve the younger And then said, Jacob, I've loved, and Esau, I've hated. Paul takes the time to tell us that it's two babies in the womb. They haven't done any good. They haven't done any evil. But the reason that God said, I choose that one and not that one, was so that his election of grace would stand. So he has established that God does pick and choose, and that's how God has always worked ever since Genesis and all the way through the Old Testament. You can see God picking and choosing and deciding, raising up and knocking down, deciding what nations are going to be lifted up and are going to prosper, what people groups are going to struggle. In other words, he is sovereign. He is in charge of what happens in his universe. Now, Paul is going to say something even more difficult, even more controversial, as if he couldn't get more controversial. (laughs) After we've done the whole election thing, now he's going to say, and God hardens people. Now, the big theological terminology for that is called reprobation, the idea that God decides, determines that some people just are not going to come to faith. And that's tough for us. It's hard for us human beings to get a hold of because we would like to think that God is nothing if not fair and that God gives everybody a chance, at least, to come to him. But Paul understands that his reading audience once they've absorbed everything he has said about election and reprobation, that at some point they're going to say, but how is that fair? Paul's going to address that too. And his answer is going to be, it's not up to you. It really doesn't matter what you think. All that matters is that's how God is. So let's start at verse 15. And then we'll go back and look at it historically. One of the things that Paul has been doing repeatedly, consistently, is that he's been going back into the Old Testament to give us examples so that we understand that his theology is not something that he just developed out of whole cloth. It's not something he made up. It's something that is firmly planted in the scripture. And he's going to do that again in verse 15. For he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, the verbal tenses in the Greek, as I mentioned last week, 
is actually, had it been translated more like the Greek prepositions run, it's I will mercy whom I will mercy. I will compassion whom I compassion. Okay, now that's kind of Paul's summary of everything he's been saying previously about God picking and choosing. That he can pick and choose who he's going to be merciful to, who is he going to be gracious to, who is he going to have compassion on. It's completely up to God. Well, he got that idea from all the way back in the book of Genesis again. Well, actually the book of Exodus. Go back to the book of Exodus, back to the Pentateuch, back to the writing of Moses. And go to chapter 33, Exodus 33. Starting in verse 14, God says to Moses, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses says to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. In other words, we need your presence in everything we do. Don't send us away from here if you don't go with us. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in thy sight, I and thy people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and thy people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. In other words, I will go with you, for you have found favor in my sight. You have found grace in my sight, and I have known you by name. And then Moses said, I pray thee, show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. That's the proper revelatory name of God. I will proclaim my own name before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So after Moses has said, show me all your glory, you're going to find out in a minute, God's going to say, well, you couldn't see it all. That that would kill you. However, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I can't even imagine what that would look like, what that would be like, what, what a magnificent thing, the goodness of God is going to pass before you. And then look what God says, I will proclaim my name. At men's group on Tuesday night, we were talking about the fact that when the Roman guards came into the Garden of Gethsemane, they said, are you the Galilean? Are you the one we're looking for? He said, I am. And he used the proper name of God. So God incarnate used the proper name of God, and it said that everybody there fell down because nobody stands up when God says his own name. That's the glory. That's the majesty of the God we're talking about. And he saw that as a privilege when he said to Moses, 
I will say my own name in front of you. The purity of God declaring the purity of God. The sovereignty of God declaring the sovereignty of God. The goodness, the holiness of God declaring the goodness and the holiness of God. And that's all wrapped up in I will say my name in front of you. And why is he doing this? Because he chose to. Because I will be gracious on whom I'll be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, importantly, when Paul imports that into the book of Romans, not only is he creating some new, unique theology, but he's saying what God himself said. So if you have a difficulty with the theology of God picks and chooses... (laughs) If you have a difficulty with the idea that God can choose who to be gracious to and who to have compassion on, well, then you're disagreeing with God himself because God himself has declared within the context of showing his own goodness and declaring his own name. In that context, he describes himself. He describes the character of himself as I'm the one who is gracious to whoever I want to be gracious to. I'm the one who is compassionate to whoever I want to be compassionate to. Verse 20 says, But God said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have completely passed by and then I will take my hand away and you will see the last vestiges of that glory passing by. You'll see just my back, but my face you'll never see. Now, of course, we can talk about the implications of that, that God places us in the rock in order to protect us from his own glory and wrath that would destroy us. So there's the gospel even being preached there, but in the context of God himself preaching this gospel of protecting his people by placing them in the rock as his glory that would otherwise kill them, his holiness that would otherwise destroy them, he protects people from himself. And we could talk about that as a gospel message. And yet in that context, God says, I'm gracious to who I'm gracious. And I'm compassionate to who I'm compassionate. Paul picks that up. Go back to Romans again. Paul picks that up as his summary statement as he's talking about God picking and choosing. So he says, yes, historically, the fact is God picked and chose. He picked and chose between Abraham's two children. He picked and chose between the two twins that were in Rebekah's womb. He picks and chooses which way the seed is going to go. And he's always been that way. And why has he always been that way? Because he himself said, I'll have mercy on who I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'm going to have compassion. God himself declares himself to be a choosing, electing God. But then that's the way it would have to be. Because let's be honest. What is it in you that is so good, so right, so holy that God would say, well, it's just not going to be heaven without you. (laughs) 
that's just not going to be good enough unless you're here. There's not a person on the planet who can say, my righteousness is such, my faith is such, my desire is such, that God would have to choose me. Sure, he might pass over you, but come on, me. Well, there's not a person, according to Paul, who does good. He's already told us that at the beginning of the book, that both Jews and Gentiles are guilty, and he finally narrows it down to there's no one that does good, no, not one. And then he describes the wretched sinfulness of all humanity. So if all humanity is, in fact, totally depraved, then what could God possibly see in anybody that would compel him to choose them? It has to be grace. It has to be mercy. It has to be something within the eternal wisdom and counsel of God that he decided this one and not that one. Two babies in a womb. This one, not that one. That's what Paul argues, and he argues it on the basis of God himself saying, I'll have mercy on who I'll have mercy. Now, thank God, since that's the way God does work, since we know that he has mercy on whoever he's going to have mercy, thank God if he had mercy on you. Because that mercy was him calling you to himself. That mercy was he put his spirit inside you, the very spirit of truth who Jesus himself said the world cannot receive. Not just does not receive, the world cannot receive. So God determines in mercy, in kindness, in grace, who he's going to give his holy spirit to. That spirit draws you to Christ, draws you to God, and all of that is an act of unfathomable mercy. Because there's nothing in you that would have compelled him to do that. But then Paul turns to the other side of that coin. If it's true that God picks and chooses some people, is it then equally true that he doesn't pick some people? Paul's going to say, yeah, absolutely. And the example that he's going to use is the Pharaoh in Egypt. Just think about that story for a moment. God is bringing Israel out of Egypt after he had told Abraham, your descendants are going to go into a land where they're not known. They're going to serve there for 400 years. They're going to come out with greater substance than they went in, and I'm going to bring them back to this very land. And then there's the Egyptians who he brings plagues on while protecting Israel from many of those same plagues. And then he delivers them with a mighty hand and takes them through the Red Sea, brings them back ultimately to their own land. And what does he do to the Egyptians? Drowns them. Drowns that army, not only putting plagues on them, but then drowns them. But there's also a theological reality here that we're going to look at where God says to Pharaoh, I kept you alive so that I could pour out my plagues on you so that the nations would know to fear me. Think about that for a moment. I kept you alive. I could have wiped you out. I kept you going so that I could demonstrate my power in you. Okay, so where does Paul get this theology? Where does Paul get this idea that, yes, God also hardens some people? 
Well, he gets it directly from the Bible because that's what he's doing. Keeps looking back in the scripture, keeps looking back in the Old Testament, keeps going back to the Pentateuch, to the earliest five books, to the writing of Moses, and keeps saying, look, God is displaying himself to be a God who picks and chooses and also hardens some people because we know the story. Everybody knows the story that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But why did he harden his heart? so that he would have somebody to demonstrate his own power and authority in. Here, I'll show that to you. Paul says, verse 16, Since it's God that shows mercy, it's God who gives compassion, then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but it's dependent on God who has mercy. In other words, Salvation, coming to God, having the Holy Spirit, does not depend, says Paul, on your will. You didn't decide it. You didn't wake up one morning in your horrible, sinful state. You didn't wake up one morning enjoying your sin and then say to yourself, Self, I should probably go get saved. That never happened. Because people enjoy their sin, they enjoy the darkness of their sin, they're in the blindness of their sin, and as a consequence, they don't know in their ego, in their self-sufficiency, they don't know that they're wrong. They don't know anything about their own sinfulness. In fact, in those places where they might recognize their own wrongness, they'll justify themselves. And they'll say, my wrongness isn't really all that wrong. Because after all, I'm not Hitler. After all, I'm not as bad as Pol Pot. And so as long as those people exist on the planet who are actually worse than me, then that makes me not that bad. (coughs) Sinners, naturally, will justify themselves. So it has to be an act of God's mercy And it's never an act of the will of man because the will of man is corrupted by his sinfulness. And it's not him who runs. In other words, it's not the one that does stuff. There's no amount of stuff you can do that is going to make God say, oh, oh, you really mean it. Oh, I didn't realize you're really serious about this. You've done the stuff that other people weren't willing to do. So therefore, I save you on the basis of the things you did. Jesus himself talked about those people who were going to come to him and say, Lord, Lord, have we not? And then they start listing their credits. Have we not done great works in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Jesus says, and I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So even their stuff that they did, even their good stuff that they did, even the stuff they could brag about that they did, that's all what Paul is calling the running stuff. So it's not up to your decision, it's not up to your will, and it's not up to the stuff you did. So what are you possibly going to do to obligate God? What do you got? You got nothing. And that's the whole point that Paul's been driving at throughout this book, is that you are Wretched, depraved, sinful, nobody does good, no, not one. Well, then the obvious question is, well, then how do people get saved? And the answer is, God has to save you. 
It's not your will. It's not your doing. It's not your running. It's God who has mercy. It's God who has compassion. That has to be the source of all salvation. It can't be anything in you. For, look at verse 17. For, which means because, it's a continuation of the same thought that Paul's building on. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up. To demonstrate my power in you. Do you hear what God is saying? I made you Pharaoh of Egypt. Since I'm in charge of everything and I'm sovereign, I raised you up all the way to Pharaoh for this purpose. To demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That's why God made Pharaoh the Pharaoh so that he could bring his plagues on somebody and then drown the entire army of the Egyptians so that all the nations of the earth would recognize him as the only God. That's, that's why he did it. You want to read about it? Sure, Jim, let's read it. Go back to Exodus 9. Exodus chapter 9. Because I actually think the description that Moses gives us in the book of Exodus is even more astounding than what Paul picked up. Let's start around verse 8. Why not? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust all over the land of Egypt, and it will become boils breaking out with sores on men and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. What is God doing? He's bringing a plague on the Egyptians because they've held the Israelites in bondage for 400 years, which thing God told Abraham was going to happen. So God tells Abraham, your descendants are going to go into a land where they're not known. They're going to serve there for 400 years. They're going to come out with greater substance than they went in. Okay, well, then it's God who determined that the Israelites were going to go into Egypt. So then the Egyptians did exactly what God determined they were going to do. The Egyptians had no choice in this matter. Suddenly, the Israelites are in their land. They're becoming a great mass of people. The Egyptians become afraid that if the Israelites ever side with their enemies, they're going to become a great force that are going to work against the Egyptians in their own land. So they put them into slavery, into servitude, just like God said. This is all what God planned. And then after 400 years of servitude, God sends Moses in to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But before Moses ever gets to Pharaoh, God says to Moses, and I'm going to harden his heart so that he doesn't let them go. Oh, okay, so you want me to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, but you're going to harden his heart so he doesn't let them go. That, that's your plan, God? That's, that's how this works? Okay, so then there's a whole series of plagues after plague after plague. Why did God do it this way? Why did God plan it this way? He clearly planned it. He announced it 400 years in advance. 
430 years, according to Paul. He announces it way in advance that this is what he's going to do. Then he does it. And then he holds the Egyptians guilty for how they held the Israelites in bondage. And yet they only did what God determined they would do. So take some soot, throw it in the air. It's going to become fine dust. It's going to land on people all over Egypt. And then they're going to break out with sores and boils all over their body. So they took the soot from the kiln. They stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it toward the sky and it became boils breaking out with sores both on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians as well as all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. You would think that at that point, Pharaoh would go, okay, enough with the boils. The frogs, the lice, none of this is fun. Get out of here. You can go. No, God hardens his heart so that despite all these displays of power and all the pain and the agony that all the people of Egypt are going through, nevertheless, God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that after the plague ends, Pharaoh would go, nope, you're still not leaving. Nope, I'm still holding on to you. Why did God do it that way? Well, he's going to explain it now. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So we know that this is exactly what God had determined for Moses and Pharaoh and Egypt and Israel. God decided all this in advance because in the end, it's all about him. All these people are doing the things that God determined they were going to do for God's ultimate glory. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go so that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now... I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. In other words, God's saying, I, I kept sending plagues to you, something to make you really uncomfortable, but I wouldn't kill you. I kept you alive on purpose. Had I sent you a pestilence, you'd all be dead. But I kept you alive so that I could keep putting plague after plague after plague on you. For what reason? God himself speaking. Verse 16. But indeed for this cause I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. And still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Astounding. I mean, duct tape your head closed. This is astounding stuff. God is holding Egypt guilty for doing the very thing that God determined they were going to do. And God brought all kinds of punishment on them, but wouldn't let them die under any of those punishments. For what reason? So that there'd still be somebody to curse the next time. So that God could bring still another plague. So that God could keep making things worse and worse in Egypt. For what reason? 
not because of Israel and not because of Egypt, ultimately, for his own glory, for his own namesake. That very name that he declared to Moses at the mountain, that very name that is his majesty and his holiness, that very name that separates him from everyone and everything else in the universe, that very namesake is the reason that God decided to do exactly what he's doing in Egypt and Israel. Now the tough question. Did the Israelites or the Egyptians have any choice in the matter? No. No. And God did it anyway. You know why? Because he's God. And he's doing the same thing in your life. He can do whatever he wants to do. He can deliver you. He can bring you to himself. He can bring you to salvation. He can harden your heart so that you'll never come to him. It's all up to him. So Paul picks up that very story and those announcements from God that he would raise up Pharaoh for the purpose of showing his own glory and he imports that into his theology in the book of Romans and he says for the scripture says to Pharaoh for this very reason I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So you see where Paul's getting his theology? It's no novelty. He didn't just make anything up. He's reaching back into the earliest books of the Bible and saying, this is how God is. This is what he's like. This is how he acts. This is how he's always acted. For the scripture says of Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then Paul comes to the conclusion in verse 18, so then God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now let's talk about that for a moment, for a few moments. You got some time? Anybody got anywhere to be? Let's talk about this for a moment. Remember the largest context. A couple of weeks ago, I was introducing... Romans 9, 10, and 11. And we looked at the end of chapter 11. And we saw where Paul says that there is the remnant portion of Israel who God has brought to Christ, brought to faith, but then the rest of them were hardened. Recall that? Remember what Paul is really arguing here. He's really arguing against those people who have said, but what about Israel? Their Messiah came and they killed him. Their Messiah came and they didn't recognize him as Messiah. They rejected him. Why? Paul's argument is, well, not all of them rejected him. They're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. But then he goes into his theology of election, God picking and choosing. God can pick and choose who he wants. But then also God can harden who he wants. So within Israel, there were those that were brought to faith in Christ, and there were those who were hardened. Now, the tough question, were they hardened for good? Is that it? Are they just hardened? It's over. Hardened. Well, no, Paul is going to say that their hardening was what he called a partial hardening until... The fullness of the Gentiles comes in. 
and then all Israel will be saved. That's what Paul says. Okay, so what that implies is that God can harden some people, like Pharaoh, for their destruction. But God can harden some people until it's time. And when it's time, he'll enlighten them. So I started thinking about it just this very week, started thinking, well, can I find examples anywhere in the Bible of this happening, of God hardening certain people for a period of time, though he knows it's his intention to enlighten them later? Can I find examples of that? Turns out I can. You know I wouldn't bring it up unless I could. Turn to the end of the book of Luke for just a moment. Keep your finger there in Romans. We're just following Paul's theology here. The very end of the book of Luke, chapter 24, after the resurrection, but very soon after the resurrection, we're going to start in verse 13, where there are two disciples of Jesus walking on the road toward the village called Emmaus. Two of them on that day were going to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things that had taken place, about the fact that Jesus had died, he'd been buried, and then some women had told them the tomb was empty and the body's gone. And now they're walking and talking about it. And it came about while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself, the resurrected Lord, Jesus himself approached them and began walking with them. Look at the next verse. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. What happened? Jesus knows they're his disciples. Jesus knows he's going to enlighten them. But... For the moment, he blinds them. For the moment, he protects himself. Might we even say he hardens them to the point where they can't recognize him. Because he has another purpose, and we're going to look at what that purpose is. Once they have accomplished that purpose, he's going to enlighten them to the fact that it's him. All I'm demonstrating here is that God knows how to keep people in the dark until he's ready To reveal himself to them. And that's true of Israel. He can keep hardened Israel hardened for as long as he needs to. Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then all Israel is going to be saved. Isaiah's nation born in a day is going to come to fruition. They're going to look on him, Zechariah says. They're going to look on him whom they have pierced. And they're going to weep as a mother weeping over her only child. They're going to come to recognize the Messiah who they crucified. But not yet. Their eyes are withheld right now so that they can't recognize him. Even though, as Paul says, as touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, for the unconditional promises that were made to the forefathers. For that reason, they are beloved, even though they're blinded. Okay, so here's Jesus talking to a couple guys who are beloved, even though they're blinded. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He said to them, 
What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? They stood still looking sad, and one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who's unaware of the things that have happened here the last few days? He said to them, What things? I love that question. Tell me, tell me the story of me. He said, what things? They said, the story of Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and in the sight of all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. That gives you some sense of what their anticipation was from the Messiah. He was going to redeem Israel. And indeed, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, good job, guys. You're good reporters. I appreciate you telling me everything. So he said to them, you fools. Okay, why? What were they foolish about? They didn't believe what the scripture already said. So follow this. He said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, I'm only doing what Scripture said I was going to do. Scripture and the prophets have already told you what to expect from Messiah. You had the wrong expectation But I'm still doing exactly what the scripture said I was supposed to do. So essentially what he's doing at this moment is that he has withheld them from recognizing him in the flesh until they recognize him in the book. When they understand the scriptural description of him, then they're going to see him in the flesh. But he withholds himself until they learn the lesson. So beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He wanted them to see him in the scriptures. And as they approached the village where they were going, he acted as though he would have gone further. And they urged him saying, stay with us. For it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished out of their sight. In other words, he had done exactly what he came to do, and then he was gone. Which means the whole Emmaus Road conversation is what he meant to do. What he meant to do was come to two of his disciples and admonish them to understand what the scripture said about him 
And then once they understood that, because he demonstrated it, he showed it, that's a sermon I would have loved to hear. I want to hear Jesus explain himself from the scripture. And then after he explained it to them, then he gives them bread, their eyes are open, then they understand, he vanishes. Okay, what's the whole point of that story? They, of course, afterwards say, didn't our heart burn within us when he was telling us these things? He was converting them, he was showing, he was demonstrating from the Bible, from the scripture, that he was who he said he was, he did what he was supposed to do, he was doing those things that God ordained to be done. My whole point in going through that story is to say, God can hold back, harden, blind people in a temporary way. And after they have learned whatever they were supposed to learn, after whatever God's purpose in hardening them has been accomplished, then he can enlighten them again. And that is exactly what Paul says in Romans 11, that he has hardened them partially until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Then once that has been accomplished, then all Israel is going to be saved. As touching the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, says Paul, they are beloved because of the Father's sake. So there was no state of belovedness that changed during their hardening. You understand that? The same way that Jesus withheld himself from the two disciples, but then taught them all that good stuff. Why? Because he hated them? No, because he loved them. No state of belovedness changed through the whole hardening process. Do you get my point? This is a sovereign God we're talking about. This is a God who can do anything he wants, and he's telling us here what he's doing to Israel. Whom he will, he's merciful. Whom he wants to, he's compassionate. But who he wants to, he hardens. Back in Romans 9, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now look at verse 19. After all that deep, heavy theology, and this, this has been quite a chapter so far, Paul then says, presupposing that his audience is going to think this, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Because who resists his will? Remember the story that I told about Israel and Egypt. They had no choice in it. God brought about all that stuff. God accomplished all that stuff in human history. And he did all that for his own glory, to show his own power, to demonstrate his own authority over everything and everyone. And nobody got any choice in it. And some he chose, some he enlightened, some he saved, some he delivered, some he hardened, some he drowned. Some went through plagues. Some were protected from plagues. Why? Because it's up to God. And nobody has any choice in the matter. So then the natural question is, but then how can he find fault with us if we've only done what he determined we would do. And if you don't arrive at that question, you don't understand Paul's argument. You can read commentary after commentary, listen to sermon after sermon, that will try to make Romans 9 more fair. But Paul knows he's just made a really unfair argument. 
And he presupposes that if you understood his argument, you're going to reach the point of saying, how is that fair, Paul? You're going to say to me, how is it that he still finds fault? Because who resists his will? If the people who he finds guilty only did what he determined they were going to do, how does he then fault them for doing what he decided they would do? You can go back and find it in places like Isaiah 10. God punishes the Assyrians for the haughtiness of their heart with which they attacked Israel. And yet God said that the Assyrians were a club in his hand that he used to punish his own people Israel. So God used a whole nation of people to correct his beloved people. Those people had no choice in the matter. And then he punished the people who punished his people for the haughtiness of their heart when they punished his people. They all did exactly what he said they were going to do. How does he find fault with that? How does he hold Pharaoh accountable for Pharaoh's deeds when he hardened the heart of Pharaoh? Pharaoh didn't have a choice but to do what Pharaoh did, and then God holds him guilty. You see Paul's question? It's the natural human question. It's the question we're all, once we see this theology, once you come to grips with he has grace on who he has grace and he hardens who he hardens, your natural fleshly instinct is to immediately say, I don't like this teaching. I don't like what the Bible says. Your God is a monster. And if God's that way, then I'm not going to let him be my God. I'll go make a God after my own liking, my own design. I'll find a God who thinks I'm great. That's what I'll do. I'll just make my own God. So Paul says, you're going to say to me, that's not fair. That's not right. Look at Paul's answer. On the contrary, which means the exact opposite of the way you're thinking, you're busy thinking in your flesh that it's somehow intrinsically unfair of God to be like that. But on the contrary, who are you? Look at that answer. Who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? You don't get to answer back to God. Think about it for just a moment. You're God, right? You're God. You're the creator of everything. You're the master of time, space, and reality. You're the all-omnipotent holy one. And then Leon's going to walk up to him and say, why are you being the way you're being? You don't get to answer to God because he's God. I spent so much of my life beating my head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty. The reason I call it the brick wall of God's sovereignty is because God doesn't change to suit me. God doesn't change who he is, how he acts, what he thinks. He changes nothing to make me more comfortable with how he is. Now, thank God again that to his own people, he is loving and kind and gracious and good. 
But that exact same God was under no obligation to be kind and loving and gracious and good to me. He has been, and I thank him, and I praise him, and I worship him, and I've devoted my life to standing up here, spelling out his word week after week after week because of my love and devotion, because of how good he's been to us. Not that we've loved God, but that he first loved us. So the very fact that he did everything he's done on our behalf is nothing but good and kind and gracious, but he was under no obligation to be that way. And when you tell people that, when you tell people you're a sinner, you're depraved, when you tell people you can't do anything to get yourself saved, it's not your will, it's not your running, it's up to God to show mercy to you. When you tell people that, they don't like it because it rubs up against their flesh. And their flesh is busy saying, dig me. Their flesh is busy saying, I'm good. Their flesh is busy justifying themselves. So Paul says, who are you? Who do you think you are? What is your estimation of yourself that you think you're going to stand up in front of God and make him answer you? Who are you to put God on trial? You're not the judge. He is. He doesn't have to answer to you. You have to answer to him. And by the way, no matter how much you agree or disagree with him, if he says, get out of my sight and stay out of my sight, go into utter darkness, you don't get a choice. You got nothing to say about it. It's up to him. It's up to his judgment, it's up to his grace, it's up to his mercy, it's up to who he hardens. It's completely up to him. I keep saying and saying and saying, if you ever stand toe-to-toe with the real God, the actual God who's in this Bible, you would get on your face. You would get down in front of that God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because you're not going to demand anything of him. And so Paul's answer is, who are you? Who do you think you are to stand up to him? Who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? That's a hysterical question. Okay, so anybody in here manufacture anything? Do you make anything? Anybody here ever made a... Okay, I used to go to shop class every once in a while, and the best thing I could ever make was an ashtray. I mean, no matter what I was making, it's a va- No, it's an ashtray. It's, everything became an ashtray. And you know what? Of the multiple ashtrays I ever made, not a one of them ever said to me, why am I an ashtray? I wanted to be a vase. I wanted to sit in the corner of the room and look great and be painted and go through the kiln and everybody go, ooh, beautiful vein. No, I'm an ashtray. You get my point? That's Paul's point. The point is, you're the thing that was made. You don't get to say to the one who made you, why'd you make me like this? Because everything belongs to him. He can do whatever he wants. Verse 21 says, or does not the potter have the right, the power over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one vessel for common use. 
he can make some of that clay a beautiful vase that does sit in the corner and everybody admires it and is just wonderful and beautiful. And then other stuff becomes common everyday pottery and bowls that fall apart and break and you throw them away the next day. And it's up to him what he's making when he's building it. Now let me emphasize again that ultimately this whole argument is about Israel. God can harden who he wants. He can be gracious to whomever he wants. But when he brings up the potter and the clay, that has resonance all the way through the Old Testament. I'll just give you this and we're done for the morning. You can look up these passages if you want. Isaiah 29, 16. You don't have to turn there. I'll read these things to you. Isaiah 29, 16. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? There's a good question. Is the potter equal with the clay? If so, then the clay can say, I prefer to be a vase. I prefer to be a wonderful, beautiful thing. But if the potter's over the clay, then the potter gets to make whatever he wants out of the clay. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me? Or what is formed should say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? He doesn't know what I prefer to be. He doesn't get me. No, of course not. Again, the whole point of clay pottery is to understand that mud doesn't get an opinion. Clay doesn't say what it's going to be. You can't grab a lump of clay and say, what are you? I'll form you into whatever you say you're going to be. That's, that's just absurd. Well, that same example is used time and time again. Paul picks it up and carries it into the New Testament to keep driving home the example, the almost absurd example, that it's just not up to the clay to decide what they're going to be. Isaiah 45, 9, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or will the thing that you're making say, he has no hands? He doesn't know what he's doing. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. Jeremiah 18, 2. Jeremiah is told, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. So then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled, was marred in the hands of the potter, so he remade it into a different vessel, as it pleased the potter to make it. Skip down to verse 6, you read, God then saying, having laid out that example, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in a potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. 
So why would Paul pick up that whole potter clay scenario? Because he knows that the scriptures, that the prophets have already used that example when talking about Israel, that God can do whatever he wants with Israel. He can save some of Israel. He can harden some of Israel. He can harden them for a while, and then he can enlighten them again. He can do whatever he wants with what is his, and Israel wholly and completely belongs to him. So this idea of potter and clay comes up time and time again in the prophets for the reason of saying that God can do whatever God wants to do with whatever belongs to him. And since he is the maker of all things, all things belong to him. And you don't get to complain about how he does what he does with everything that's his. You got it? So I'm going to say again, get on your face in front of that God. When you sing to that God, don't just sing random words. Sing with all your heart to that God. When you pray, Jesus says, don't use vain repetition like the heathen do. Don't turn off your brain and just talk. When you're praying to that God, recognize the astounding gift that he's given you that he allows you to come talk to him because you're just clay. If you know him, if you believe, if you have faith, That's a gift that he gave you. He was under no obligation to give it to you. But now that he has given it to you, then whatever your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, do it with all your might, the Bible says. See, this language of devotion and commitment to God permeates scripture. And the greater your understanding of the God you're dealing with, the greater your sense that you really ought to glorify that God in every aspect of your life. Who you are, what you're like, how you talk, the good deeds that you will indeed do, not to get saved, but because you are saved. The things that he has ordained that you're going to walk in. Whatever it is that you do in your life, you ought to do it to his glory. Because that God, that magnificent, glorious, holy, righteous, sovereign God was under no obligation and he picked you. You can't thank him enough. Now do you understand that everything Paul is saying here in Romans 9 is really ultimately about Israel? All those prophets talking about the potter and the pottery, it was still about Israel. So he's still explaining that Israel is partially hardened for a while, but they're going to be enlightened later. But then within Israel there's a remnant And he's going to bore down on that idea that the remnant exists. Next week we'll see him dig into several Old Testament prophecies about Israel saying that God plans to restore them yet again. So what should our theology concerning Israel be? Number one, it should be God's not done with them. Number two, he can do whatever he wants and it ain't up to you. Number three, I don't care how many men get together and develop what kind of theology or system. If their theology or system denies what the Bible says, that system is wrong. Because the Bible ends up saying God can be faithful to Israel. He's been faithful to you. You have a really faithful God. Say thank you. Okay? Okay. Okay. Questions? Yes, sir. Just a little fuzzy on the time. 
Because when we say that partial hardening, and then we say all of Israel, we say that to the Gentiles. Yeah. That obviously hasn't happened yet. What about the Israelites who have died? In the meantime, were they, you know, I get lost in it somewhere. But those, I guess, individuals um, and their state. Yeah. We're going to get to all that. By the time we get to chapter 10 and chapter 11, Paul drills down on that a little bit more. But essentially the answer is, number one, God can resurrect. The prophets say that. Go back and look at the Valley of Dry Bones. He can ultimately make Judah and Israel restore them, bring them back to their land. He has yet to give them all the land he promised to Abraham. So my answer ultimately is God can do whatever he wants. And if he said he's going to do it, okay, then he said he's going to do it. So I believe him. And even if I can't iron out every detail of how he's going to do it, I look forward to looking over the rail from heaven, watching him do it, and going, oh, there it is. He's, he's doing exactly what he said he's going to do. But Paul is going to address some of that as we continue, especially when he gets into the natural branches being cut off and wild branches grafted in. It's going to get into some of that. Or at least I'm going to get into some of that. We're going to get into some of that. Okay. Can you be patient a couple weeks? Okay. Yes, sir. When, when you've been showered with so many blessings, you can't even count them. But when you realize that God has made his face shine upon you, the natural reaction is to be puffed up. But let me tell you, the proper reaction is to be so humble that you're just groveling. It's a good reminder. Get this little chorus book right here. Find your chorus book. Turn to number 15. We're going to sing, There is a Redeemer.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.